Again, this is confirming my decision to marry you. Well, I'm, I'm glad something is. <laughs> Welcome to Writing in Real Life, a podcast about writing, publishing, parenthood, and marriage. I'm Barry Liga. With me is Morgan Baden. This is our first podcast in the new world order. That's true. <laughs> of President-elect Trump. Words I never thought I would say. Uh, you know, if, if you wrote a dystopian novel about a fascist takeover of America and you named the commander-in-chief President Trump, your editor... Would make you change it. Would make you change it. Mm -hmm. Your editor would say, I can see the note in the margin. Isn't this a little on the nose? Right. Isn't this a little over the top? Apparently, reality has once again outdone fiction. Mm -hmm. You know, on a, on a real note, obviously, this is sort of somber. Um, you and I, I think, I feel like today is the first day that um, I felt a little bit more normal since the results. Yeah. I mean, you know... The, <laughs> Make no mistake, this is not going to turn into a political podcast. No, but... But by the same token, this is not an apolitical podcast. Yeah. And issues of writing and parenthood and marriage and publishing are inextricably bound with with politics. Yep. And I imagine that most of our listenership feels similar to the way we feel. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine there are a lot of fervent Trump supporters who listen to this podcast. If there are... Um, Here's some advice about things that offend you. You can turn it off if you don't like it because uh, we're not going to hold back. We're, we're not happy. Yeah. Uh, this is a bad thing. This is a very bad thing. There was one point a couple of days after the election where I was in the bathroom, I think, brushing my teeth, getting ready for work. And you were in the bedroom with our kid getting ready for the day. And as I was thinking to myself, oh, we need a Katniss. We need... Right. Like, this is what's going to happen. There's going to be a resistance. We're going to have, like, a chosen one. You know what I mean? But, like, behind the scenes, there's going to be a bunch of us working on things. This is totally District 13, yada, yada. And just then you called from the bedroom and said, someone tweeted at me and said, wow, we really need a jazz right now. Well, what they said was, they said, can jazz do anything to help? Right, yeah. And Jazz for my hunt killers. Yeah, and there's only one answer to that, and it would get me in trouble with the Secret Service. <laughs> so I, I declined to, to talk about that. Uh, but but yeah. I guess this is the first time that, like, you know, there's all this, all this information about the rise of dystopian novels a few years ago and why this generation of YA readers connected so strongly with them. And it's because they've grown up in a world that, you know, they're the nine 11 generation. They've grown right. up in a world full of war constantly. Um, so this is their normal. And for the first time I was like, Oh wow. Like, yes, this, these dystopian novels maybe hopefully prepared us for this a little bit. It could be. Um, I think, you know, I, th I think honestly, one of the problems with the dystopian novels is it, it teaches you that, that, there are relatively simple fixes for the problems at hand. You know, you need the right person to do the right thing at the right time mm -hmm. and everything is fixed. Uh, a lot of these novels end right when the bad guy is beaten and don't show you how difficult it is to recuperate and to rebuild the world afterwards. Well, yeah. I mean, you haven't read The Hunger Games. I have. You have. You didn't finish the trilogy. True. Yes. So there are things that you're missing. Okay. Okay. To be fair. But... um 
but I can. That's a fair. But point. I have read a lot of dystopian you novels. Yeah. I mean, The Hunger Games is not the only one out there. It's not. I, I'm sorry, Scholastic. <laughs> um, but I've read a lot of dystopian novels, and and that's one of the things that they have in common. I've written a dystopian novel, and that was you know I tried to avoid that idea yeah. that that there could be one person who could do one thing that would fix everything. You know, it's funny because I thought about After the Red Rain a lot during the past couple of days, in particular. And maybe this was taken out, and so I'm I'm speaking out of turn here. But um, the wikis that the wiki nets, the wiki nets, yeah. where there's so much information and you don't know what's true. Exactly. That that was, and it's funny because uh, during the the editorial process, one of the things that um, one of the things that was was said to us was, "Hey, you know, you've got these wiki nets where anybody can say anything they want, but in a fascist dystopia, wouldn't there be this top down?" Um, insistence Message on control. on hewing to a right. to a party line, and I said no. I said you know that that gives people something to rebel against. Yeah. If there's one party line out there, but if there's if there are these wiki nets that anybody can say anything they want and can mm-hmm. edit reality in any way they want, then nobody knows what to believe, and there's nothing to rally around. And damn, I nailed it, you, didn't you I? Really did. I and nailed it. I'm fascinated from my own career watching Facebook try and sort of fall all over themselves right now. Uh, claiming that they're not partly responsible for the spread of misinformation, when right. of course they clearly are. Yeah. Um, and for those of you who don't, who you, for those of you who don't know, Facebook basically fired all of the people who are editing and curating content that is served up to you, um, and the trending topics and things like that. And um, now weights. Now it's a it's a formula. It's an algorithm. And everything is weighted the same. So all those ridiculous fake news sites that are not actually news and are not real. Uh, are weighted the same as actual news and show up in everyone's news feeds. So and... it can pop that, you know, Obama is a Martian who eats babies and it will have the exact same weight as Lady Gaga has a concert. Right. And there's nothing to indicate that mm-hmm. Obama being a Martian who eats babies is fiction yeah. and not fact. So anyway, so that's it really has been striking me because we are we are looking at misinformation to an extreme level. And uh, part of that is because of social media. And part of it is also because there's no media literacy. Yeah, media literacy is incredibly important. You, you said something really important there because people have talked a lot about why did this election happen the way it did? And they've they've looked for rationales. And one thing I haven't heard anybody say, and, and granted, I have not been 100% dialed into all the conversations, but nobody's really talking about education. Yeah. The fact of the matter is that we as a country have a tremendously ill-educated populace. I'm not saying this is an Ivy League snob who went to Yale. I'm saying this is somebody who graduated from a high school in the middle of nowhere in the 80s, but got a pretty decent public education Mm -hmm. and learned how to at least think critically as a result of that. And we don't teach that anymore. And there has always been a virulent streak of anti-intellectualism in this country. And that has continued. And people who are just who just literally don't have the information and the critical thinking skills to discern fact from fiction are making really important decisions and they're making the wrong decisions. That's not snobbery. That's not elitism. That's just a cold, sober reading of the fact. There's also, I mean, there have been a a rise of stories over the past few days of people reporting on the conversations that they've had with Trump supporters. And the truth is they are incredibly ill-informed. Right. And they're saying things like, well, I was really excited when, this is a real one that I saw, I was really excited when Trump released his taxes. So that's when I decided to vote for him. Right. And the person was like, um, but he didn't. 
And she was like, oh, I, re- I thought I read that on Facebook. Yeah. You know, like, so it's it's really, it's really shocking. Um, I do think we should talk about parenting right now and how sure. how this election has affected us over the past few days because it's really affected me. I know obviously it affected you too, but in terms of the day-to-day um, conversations with our kid. I mean, fortunately, she is young enough that she doesn't know of course, anything. Yeah. And with luck, by the time she is old enough to understand what a president is, he'll be out. Right, yeah. Um, but it, it's been, I guess what I'm getting at is twofold. One is, obviously, in the immediate aftermath, um, I was doing a lot of crying. Right. And I just kept looking at her. I, I, I honestly feel like the first 24 hours afterwards, I almost couldn't meet her eyes. Right. Because I was so scared. Yeah. Of what was going to happen. I mean, I remember, you know, the day after, um, I didn't want to take her to daycare. I wanted to keep yeah. her home and just cuddle with her all day uh-huh. and sort of protect her from, from the world. And I realized that that that's because I understood what was going on. She has no idea what's going on. She would just be like, why is dad like all why over me? me why won't yeah. he let me go? And and it, neither of us would get what we needed out of that day. So as difficult as it was, I took her to daycare, which was a smart thing to do. She had a great day at daycare. And, and I was able to, to be with my thoughts and not worry about yeah. getting so distracted that I felt like I was neglecting her yeah. or something like that. But And that's the other thing. And that's the second part of my twofold thinking here it yeah. was there was it, there's something, of course, incredibly grounding about being a parent, because no matter what's going on in the world, there are things you need to accomplish and achieve with your kid each day yes you they have to wake up they have to have breakfast they have to get you know what i mean They're, yeah well you can't you can't just you can't just curl up and right and and die for a few days right because you got to take care of your kids so i was actually incredibly grateful for those tedious moments that on any given day i'm sort of maybe kind of rushing through to get them done because they're not necessarily fun right but it was it was really rooting me in the present and in her and my and in my connection with her so um, so I was really grateful to be a parent for the past couple of days while at the same time being terrified. Yeah, I understand that. Um, so yeah. So that's where we are. That's where we are. And like I said, this is not suddenly going to become a podcast about politics, but, um, as, as politics touches on these issues that we talk about, we're going to talk about it and you know where we stand. And like I said, yeah. you know, if, uh, if it doesn't make you happy. Don't send us hate mail. Just avail yourself of the unsubscribe button and, uh, you know, enjoy your life for however long it lasts. It was funny, though, I have to say, um, one of my favorite podcasts is Bitch Sesh, hosted by Casey Wilson. Wait, and this is not one of your favorite podcasts? I said one of. All right. Uh, Casey Wilson and Danielle Schneider. And it's it's a Real Housewives slash Bravo TV recap. And it's Oh, yeah, I listened to that one. <laughs> and it's absolutely hilarious. But um, what I really appreciated was in their episode they just released a couple of days ago, their post-election episode, they spent quite a bit of time talking about the election and hashing through their disappointment. And and then they said something that really struck with stuck with me. Then they said something that really stuck with me, which was um, like, hey, guys, maybe some of you are, are upset that we're talking about this right now. And you're saying to yourselves... Why are they talking about politics? This is a show about Real Housewives. Well, guess what? Those Real Housewives are incredibly political. Look at everything that happens in those shows. They are politicians to their core. And started giving examples. And I just thought that was really useful and a, a good thing to remember because people say a lot of the time, like, I hate politics. I don't, you know, I'm better than politics, right. blah, blah, blah. But politics is everywhere. 
we are all always sadly, being political. Sadly, it was not supposed to be that way. It was not always that way. Politics was supposed to be something that happened occasionally. Mm. Um, it has become something that has become part of daily life. And yeah. again, it was never intended to be that way. Um, and the whole idea of a political class is something that's sort of antithetical to the, the founding of the country. But anyway, anyway, this is not a, a podcast about political history. Right. Luckily. Yes. Because I would not be the host of it. If it were. <laughs> so that's how we feel. Let's move on now. Let's talk. Uh, last week, we, uh, we promised everybody that I would go ahead and use the Who Do You Write Like engine yeah. that you had mentioned. I hope you guys did, too. I, I hope people did. I, I'm curious to, to hear what people write like. So I went ahead and did it. Okay. And I put in five different novels of mine. That's Because awesome. a lot of my books are very different from each other. And I thought, let's see what the results are yeah. for these different books. Let, let's see if there's, like, common elements across my most different books. So this is what I chose, and these were the results. So first, I picked Fanboy and Goth Girl, which was my, my first novel, my debut. And it came out uh, with Thomas Hardy at, t- at the top. But wait, and, look, Willa Cather in fourth place. Yeah, I was going to say Willa Cather in fourth Damn. place. Yeah, that, channeling my, my, uh, my feminine side. Uh, G.K. Chesterton down there at number five. Zane Gray at number three. I don't know who that which is. Which I thought was sort of interesting. Uh, Westerns. Ah, uh, that's why I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and uh, John Stuart Mill. Um, who's a philosopher, um, political philosopher at number two. So that that's sort oh, of Oh, and you've got Edith Wharton in your top ten. I've got Edith Wharton in my top See, ten. See, that's why I married you. Lucy Maud Montgomery, um, Bertrand Russell, Charles Dickens, Samuel Pepys. Those are all in my top ten. Very interesting for, uh, for Fanboy and Goth Girl. So then I went ahead and I did Boy Toy, my okay. second book, because it's sort of similar to Fanboy and Goth Girl uh, in terms of the writing style, but... It's a very different kind of book. And I was curious to see what, what this engine would say about that. So for, for Boy Toy, again, Thomas Hardy, number one. So I thought that was very interesting. And look, Willa, Willa Cather, Cather number, number two. two. We still had John Stuart Mill and G.K. Chesterton up there. Um, but when you're looking at my top ten, we also see Jane Austen, Stephen Crane, Upton Sinclair. So, But wait, you're missing my favorite. D.H. Lawrence? Uh-huh. I skipped that for a reason, damn it. Okay. <laughs> I'll come back to that later. Um, so I, I thought that that was really interesting because... You know, even though the the Thomas Hardy is the number one, the the rest of the top ten are not not really the same. Yeah, and uh, so that tells me that I really did sort of achieve a different kind of writing, even though it seems superficially similar. Next book, yeah. Next, I did Arch Villain, which is my uh, was the first book I'd written for middle grade, and uh, that was uh, number one was John Muir, and then Stephen Crane, P.G. Wodehouse, Washington Irving, Rudyard Kipling. Robert Louis Stevenson, Willa Cather again. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was interesting too, especially the Irving and the Kipling and the Stevenson in there, because Archvillain does have more of a of a sort of adventure story vibe to it, and so to have those guys in there, I thought was was very interesting. Uh, it's interesting because there's probably only about fifty names there, right? Yeah, I think there's probably up maybe fifty authors that he uses in total. Yeah. So if I were a statistics person, I would put together some sort of map here showing how. Um, every one of your books has the same X percentage of people in the top 10. Do you know what I mean? Because I'm seeing, again, I'm seeing a lot of the same repeat names. And if I look further down the list here, um, Thoreau and Arthur Conan Doyle and Edgar Allan Poe and Churchill and but like and Mark Twain, but none of those are breaking the top even twenty for you, right? And I, it's just really interesting. So I got Edith Wharton like right in the middle. Yeah, she is in the middle. Yeah. Uh, Hmm. So yeah. 
So there's that. Now it starts to get interesting, though, because then what I did, I did Unsold, which is my adult novel that I self-published a few years ago. And number one, <laughs> D.H. Lawrence, which makes perfect sense. If you have read Unsold. If you have read Unsold. You know this will not be a surprise to you that D.H. Lawrence is the biggest uh, similarity there. But even, and, and then Rudyard Kipling, Jane Austen, again, Willa Cather is constantly in my yeah, top ten. Yeah, So that's very interesting. Again, this is confirming my decision to marry you. Well, I'm, I'm glad something is. <laughs> and last but not least, I did the first book in the uh, Killer series, I Hunt Killers, because that is that seems very different. And sure enough, that is probably the most different it really that I is. have. Yeah. Because it's Stephen Crane at number one, John Muir, Philip K. Dick, then Lucy Maud Montgomery, Rudyard Kipling, Washington Irving. Again, those people had been in some of the other ones, but much lower down. Willa Cather, though, still in the top ten. Yeah. But look, those those top three for I Hunt Killers were nowhere were near We're nowhere near top my tops for the others. So so Killers really was written differently than than the other books, according to this. Yeah. According to this. Listen, this was a really fun exercise. It's a lot of fun. I encourage it, you guys to do those it. Those of you out there who are authors or just who like authors, like plug some people in and and see what this comes to. There was a link last week in the show notes, and you know what? We'll put it in again this week so that it's easier for people to get to. It's just a fun thing to do. Yeah. I think we all could use a little bit of fun right now. Seriously. So I want to talk, you mentioned Facebook before. I want to talk about social media for a moment. Okay. Um, Since that is your metier. And uh, I want to talk about social media and authors, as we often do. Mm -hmm. There was a piece in uh, Publishers Weekly uh, about a month ago titled is social media toxic to writing and the subhead was what happens when a debut author won't join social media this is about a woman named rebecca kaufman who had uh her first novel another place you've never been um and uh and she wrote this piece for publishers weekly about her her aversion to social media and i was a little disappointed by the piece honestly i thought it was well written but um but the bit where the, the subhead, I think, was very misleading, uh, for, which I blame agreed. Publishers Weekly yes. for. Yeah. Because she says, the, the headline is clearly, is social media toxic writing, which is what she writes about. Uh-huh. The subhead, what happens when a debut author won't join social media? Nowhere in there. No, yeah. Like, I was expecting like a personal story. I was about, expecting oh, yeah. something in there about, you know, it was so much better for me or it was so much worse for me. Yeah. There, spoiler alert, that's not in there at all. Yeah. And it's very frustrating because that's what I was reading it for. But basically what she, she does is she talks about she just never got into social media, mm-hmm. despite being sort of a, the ripe age right. for being yeah. into social media. She, she was, was in college when, when Facebook it, launched mm-hmm. and, and all that, but just never got into it. My and favorite though is that she uh her favorite platform when she did try it was Vine. And everybody which told has every, now been discontinued. Well not only that, but but I <laughs> want to say every, everybody platform shamed her. Yeah. They that's did. not cool. <laughs> like that's not cool. She said she really liked Vine and she thought it was interesting and she was gonna make that her platform. She uh-huh. was like, oh I'm gonna do something and and then people said no because if people ask you if you're on Facebook or Twitter and you say I'm on Vine it'll be creepy. <laughs> And she said, I don't know how that's creepy, but it was enough to get her not to do it. Which, leave poor Rebecca alone and let her be on Vine for however long it lasts. For another week or so. Yeah. So, what I I thought was interesting, you know, she and she does talk about how social media sort of puts you in this position where you're no longer writing for yourself. You're keenly aware of the fact that the audience is five feet away from you. Mm-hmm. You know, you, there's no remove anymore. Can we read this paragraph, the second 
second to last one. Sure. It's not at all unlike when you're writing fiction and you find yourself hung up on a certain scene, deciding if you should write shit because that's what your character would actually say, or bowel movement because your mom will one day read your book. The answer is obvious, but obsessing about how a certain person or the internet will react to something you've written can interfere with your vision of the world you're creating. Yeah. I mean, and, and I've, I've talked about that a lot, about how I just... I can't think about the reader or the audience when I'm writing a book. Right. But when you're doing social media, that's all you can think it, about uh-huh. because that's the whole point of it. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, there have been studies that show that the uh, endorphin hit that you get when you get likes on social media uh-huh. are similar to the endorphin hit you get from doing drugs. Um and I mean, like, Are you literally, me a drug pusher. Well, I mean, literally, social media is like a drug, but it's yeah, actually it it's actually worse than a drug in a way because it wears off so fast mm-hmm. that you're constantly seeking it, seeking it out yeah. over and over and over again, as opposed to you know a pleasant high that lasts a few hours yeah. and then you and then you feel pretty good and you don't have to do drugs again for a while. Right. Well, and it also reminds me of a, a quote from the Nancy Joe Sales book that I just finished called American Girls and Social Media, which was incredibly eye-opening and a little terrifying. But um, over and over, what she kept hearing from teenage girls about social media was, it's horrible and we hate it and it controls my life. Right. And she would always follow up with, then why are you on it? And the girls would always say, because then I wouldn't have a life at all if right. I weren't on it. And um, and that's how, that is how it feels. It's a, this constant push and pull with social. For, I think for all of us, yeah. um, most of us, I don't want to speak for everyone, where, I mean, I, I enjoy my Twitter interactions. I enjoy looking at Facebook and Instagram for the most part, but also I could do so much more if I didn't. Right. <laughs> and I would. I would. I would be able to, I think, the way Rebecca talks about in this article, to carve out some more space for my own stories. Yeah, social media feels to me like, you know, it is technology that we have created before we were ready for it as a people, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Like, we're not mature enough as a culture to really deal with it, but we made it anyway. Yeah. And now it's here, and we're playing with it. Yeah. And it's having deleterious effects on us because we're not ready for it yet. Yeah. you know, and, and that just, I don't know. I mean, I, I've always been ambivalent about it. And right after the election, I was like, I'm just getting off social media. I'm going to cancel everything. Like this is, I do not want to participate in this particular world. Um, well, and but from I'm a still very, on. from a different perspective, there are people who are saying that would be wise anyway, because of, uh, data concerns under, uh, President Trump. Well, I have always been concerned about have, that. Uh-huh. I have always, uh, I've never understood why anybody would use Gmail. I know that you do. I do. Uh-huh. But from the day they announced it, I went, why on earth would I use that? Yeah. Um, you know, hey, at least they were up front. Yeah, we're going to scrape your email. Yeah. Um, but no, I have never used that stuff. Um, I, I'm pretty good with encrypted tools yeah. and all that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not messing around with that. Um, but, and it's funny, but I realize, you know, I've already left a pretty wide social media trail of uh, my feelings about politics. Well, so yeah, there's no point in trying, no, yeah. <laughs> trying to put that genie back in the bottle. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it was an interesting piece. And I really, I mean, I, I hope that 
irrespective of, of politics and the world situation, I just hope that authors think about this stuff. Yeah. Because it can it can feel productive and it can feel like you're achieving something to put something on Twitter and get a quick hit off of it. And also and that, get a bunch of likes. That reader interaction, I'm right. sure, feels really great. Yeah, but at the end of the day, you know, you're not trying to sell your book to this person and this person and this person. You're ideally trying to sell your book to thousands and tens of thousands of people. And, you know, unless you've already got a social media platform with tens of thousands of people listening to you, those one-on-one -on -one interactions aren't going to actually help you all that much, mm. you know? Yeah. Um, so I, I, I think there needs to be a balance in how we approach this as authors. So what are you doing? Are you, do you think you're going to take a break? Is, I mean, in light of this, in light of anything, are there changes you're thinking of making? I mean, I go through periods where I'm just not doing much at all. Like yeah. there are, are times where I'll look and I'll go, oh, I haven't, other, other than retweeting something, yeah. I haven't done anything on Twitter in days. And and I don't feel too bad about that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, not just because of this article, but also because I was just sent a list of interview questions. And one of them is about how I use social uh -huh. media. And my default answer is always poorly. Uh, <laughs> Which usually surprises people because when they ask me that question, they think I'm doing something well. Yeah. And I just always assume I'm not doing anything well. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I really just don't know. I mean, I think oddly enough, the platform I have the most success with is actually Facebook. I seem like when I actually focus huh. on Facebook, okay. I get really good reaction and response to it. But it's the platform I probably loathe yeah. the most. Uh -huh. Um so I, I can't convince myself to spend the time on it and the effort on it yeah. because I hate it so much. Mm -hmm. It's just so antithetical to what I believe in. Um, Twitter is annoying just because of the limitations of it, which I know it's a feature, not a bug. But to me, it just means that it's good for passing along quick bits of information. It's not good for having conversations. Right, um, of course. And people insist on having conversations. <laughs> I'm like, no, like I can't tell you in 140 characters what I think about this. Well, I would argue, I don't think social media in general is good for actual Oh, I agree. There was actually a study that I just read about recently um, where they were talking about how um, one of the problems we have right now as a society in general is that we are really bad at reading each other's words. Right, yeah. Um, we tend to dramatically misinterpret when people give us text. Mm -hmm. Uh, when we write an email to somebody, we sort of egotistically assume they're going to know what we feel when we write it, and they're just getting the words. Yeah. And they're trying to synthesize some kind of meaning from the words we've used and from what little they may know about us. And, it's, and that's why you get a lot of misinterpretations, a lot of misunderstandings, a lot of people being offended or taking offense where there was no offense at all intended. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know... And, and that's a big problem, and social media exacerbates that because it amplifies the amount of characters flying around. Uh, maybe that's why people love emoji so much. Maybe it's <laughs> maybe it's easier to to, to understand to emoji. Just say for intent, yeah, yeah, I don't. I mean, although I have trouble with that. You know, sometimes <laughs> you'll send me an emoji. And I'm like, wait, what do you what mean by mean? this? <laughs> what are you trying to say here? Why are there hearts? I don't get it. Um, so I I don't know. I never know what I'm going to do about social media. Yeah. To answer your question, I never know. Um, it always feels really good and really attractive to just stop, mm. like just go cold turkey and just get rid of it. Um, I will say a, a shining beacon of hope for me for the past week 
has been a Facebook group. Yeah, no, oh, Cancer sure. Nation. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Um, but, it, it, like, it surprised me how much, I, how much I've gotten out of that group. I, I also feel like private groups are sort of a different animal. I mean, I understand that they sort of ride the social media camel, yeah, but, that's fair. but they're a different, they're a different thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I understand that. Um, so I, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know. Um, every time I start to think about how I'm going to modify or control my social media presence, I realize I just thought, how am I going to modify or control my social media presence when I was 12 years old and wanted to write books that I ever imagine that I would have to modify and control my social media presence. Uh-huh. Can I just kill myself now? Um, like it's not anything I'm interested in expending a lot of effort on. Yeah. So I just sort of limp along doing right. whatever feels right at the time. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it's working so far as much as it is working. <laughs> what about, but what about you? I mean, this is what you do for a living. Yeah. I mean, uh-huh. that, so a, there's your answer. Yeah. This is what I do for a living <laughs> uh, currently. And B, I'm also not, I mean, there are certainly days, depending on my um, schedule, where I don't get to tweet either, where right. I'm just too far in the weeds. Um, I barely touch Twitter on the weekends anyway. For me, it's a it's a nine to five thing on the weekdays. And then if I'm live tweeting something at night, but really, I only live tweet uh, political debates and those are over for quite a while. So, um, yeah, but I, I certainly, certainly find myself needing breaks from social, sometimes sustained long-term breaks and sometimes just, okay, I'm, I'm not going to look for the next 24 hours or something right. like that. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I've, I've been thinking a lot about it, particularly over the next, over the past couple of days. Um, and I really am finding, I mean, obviously a lot of people seek and find communities on social. And, um, like I said, I feel like mine has really been showing up for me. Yeah. Uh, so so it's really been a lifeline the past few days. Yeah. And maybe that's the answer. Maybe the answer is you just take breaks. Right. You dip in and out as needed. You know, I mean, yeah. and, and as opposed to being obsessively, addictively hardwired into it 24-7. Yeah. But I know? also think that's the, the blessing that we have in our respective generations because um, we can find that balance because right. we remember life very well without social. Yep, yep. But I do think a lot about the teenagers, the I, teenagers, no, teenagers I, right now. And I um, think about what is it, what's it going to be like for Leia? Yeah. You know, and, and her little brother, I yeah. mean, you know, are, is it going to be that crazy? I mean, you were telling me that book you were reading that, you know, these girls would spend hours taking pictures of themselves well, hours doing their makeup for right. an Instagram for an selfie. Instagram picture that and they that wanted they would, that was supposed to appear spontaneous. Yes, and they would take literally eighty five versions. Right, so and they're then spending spend an hour choosing. They're spending all this. They're spending mm-hmm. half their day. Yeah, to put a picture online. Right, and That's again, insane. you know, I'm not judging that, but what I am judging is. Think of what you could be spending your time on instead. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> that's what I'm not saying. It's not inherently bad to care about makeup and take a photo of it. No, it is. I think an issue when you're spending literally hours of your day every single day doing that instead of spending that energy on something else. Right, and especially, especially, especially girls, girls, Uh and especially when you don't even really want to do it. Exactly. When you feel like you have to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Did I talk about this book in the last episode? No. Okay. It's a really great, that's my reading recommendation for this this week. Nancy Jo Sales, uh, American Girls and Social Media, I believe is what it's called. Um, 
a, a quick read because it's just one of those lots of great case studies. She went all over the world and met with lots of different groups of teenage girls as well as some teenage boys to talk about their different uses of social, um, both in terms of bullying and and not. Uh, anyways, and it was a very, very interesting book. And my recommended reading is 1984 because we're living it. Yep. And George Orwell was kind enough to give us a guidebook as to what to expect. So real talk, I've never read 1984. Read it now while you still can. Yep. So there you go. That's it for this week. We will be back next week. On that happy note. On that happy note. Please uh, visit us at writinginreallife.com. Check out the show notes. Leave comments. Tell us what you think about whatever you think about. Uh, Follow us on Twitter at WIRL Podcast. And subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us a rating. We would love to get more ratings. And we will see you all next week.